Hey, how's it going? You know, it's going really well. I have been going to a new church the last, I don't know, four to six months. And this last Sunday at church was the first time we got to invite somebody over to our house. And so this week we have some friends coming over to our house. And uh, when I was texting them our address, it turns out that they live like three miles away. And so I'm just excited about being part of a church where we can make connections. Mm. So, yeah, it was a really good weekend. How are you doing? Hmm, That's wonderful. My weekend was not so chill. We had a significant winter storm come through, and the metro area that I dispatch in had sustained 40 to 60 mile an hour winds for most of the afternoon. And in addition to really cold temperatures for us, uh, so it was in the teens and then the wind chill was negative, clearly. And we had some a dusting of snow and a little bit of ice and then all those winds. And so it nearly, it, it felt like it uprooted every tree possible. And we at the 911 center were busier than I have ever seen it. Wow. Just to- and that's saying something. It is. Yeah. I've worked there for 14 years. So uh, that is busy. We, To give you a perspective, in a typical 24-hour period, we take about 1,600 911 calls. In just our busiest five hours alone, which was 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., we took over 1,250 911 calls. Wow. So, yeah. It was uh, so I mean, a little I could, more than a quarter of the day, and you did more than your normal day's worth of volume. Or almost, yeah. I mean, twelve fifty was what we did, and sixteen hundred is normally you know oh, yeah, what we yeah. take in a day. But it was it was insane, and I could go on and on and on about how overwhelmed the system was. We just were beyond capacity in every way imaginable. So it was busy, and I, yeah, that was a long. I worked fourteen hours that day. Uh, it was long and hard. But anyway. Well, a big thank you to all of our first responders from the folks who answer the phones to everybody else. Uh, you know, these are the moments where I think to myself, man, that's an exhausting day for you. But boy, I'm glad somebody was on the other side of that phone. Yeah, right. I mean, there's wild, crazy stories. I mean, we had. House fires, we had trees blowing down onto and through houses. We had all sorts of electrical lines down. And I mean, it was, there were some pretty scary situations that were out there. um, And it just kept happening. Like every tree just kept knocking down and falling into the most inconvenient of places. Man, and that stuff just cascades because the electrical company needs to get back out there and. They need these people. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was intense. And then your three services backed up before you can get the problem solved. My goodness. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For real. So, but that is not why we record an episode. What is today's episode about? You know, I want to talk about the word Christian 
and what we mean by it. Hmm. Yeah. I have had a long and somewhat complicated adult life with the word Christian. For 17 years, I was at a church where we chose not to use that word. And so we were always looking for how to fill in the gap left when we choose not to use the word Christian. And then in listening to some of the ways we fill in the gap then, and and lots of different parts of the evangelical movement try not to use the word Christian because of some of its connotations. And, And so every time I hear somebody fill in the gap left by the word Christian, I always find myself dissatisfied. And so Mm. I want to talk about what do we mean and what is language that would make sense to a pre- or non-believer about what we mean? You know, that's such an interesting question because as much as the term Christian is loaded— we also use it as a fence, right? We've talked a lot about this in recent episodes about mm-hmm. theological fences and who's in and who's out. And I hear from time to time people say, oh, well, they're not a real Christian. And mm-hmm. and so, okay, well, then what is exactly a real Christian? It's funny because a couple of weeks ago, you referred to yourself as an orthodox evangelical Christian. And then you jokingly said, and I actually cut this out of the episode so as not to be misunderstood, but you jokingly said, death to all other types of Christians. But you said it jokingly. I don't think everybody would have meant that as a joke. No, this is, you're absolutely, this is part of what I think my question is. Not just what are we looking for that is an understandable phrase to explain what we mean. I think I want to answer, what are we trying to do with the word Christian because of this exact idea? I think we use the word Christian to determine who's an insider and who's an outsider. And I've told you I'm kind of listening through the Gospels, and when I listen to the Gospels, I'm not sure it is Jesus' highest priority to determine insiders and outsiders. Hmm. Does that seem reasonable? Well, I don't know. I'd have to give that more thought. At the very least, I would absolutely say he is redefining who is an insider and who is an outsider. He is breaking down the existing walls that define who's an insider and who's an outsider. But is he also forming new walls, new boundaries? I absolutely think he is. I guess here's the difference that I perceive. Sometimes I feel like we as Christians say, here's the wall. And I feel like Jesus is saying, here's the door. Mm. And those are really different. Yes, you can't have a room without having walls. That is a true statement. And so if Jesus is building a structure There are walls that by definition, but when was the last time you sat in your house and the primary focus of being in the house was, well, these are the things that are in the house and these are the things that are outside of the house, right? Like Hmm. if there's somebody who's like out in the pouring rain, you're not going to look through the window and be like, hey, you're outside and I'm inside. So ha, (laughs) right? 
Sure. You're going to be like, hey, there's a door over here if you want to come in. It's great in here because it's kind of dry and we love that. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so walls that have a door and where the door is emphasized rather than walls that are like a, a wall to keep people out, uh, gated. Yeah. Or, I don't know. Um, I'm picturing like gates with spikes on it or, you know, a, a castle walls with all of its defensive perimeters or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, he's emphasizing that the barrier is permeable, not that there's a barrier. Yeah. Okay. Well, I agree with that, but I think we're even struggling to put language around walls, doors, and these types of things, which I think mm -hmm. highlights the reason why the word Christian and many of its substitutes are kind of inadequate. Because if we look at scripture, most of the time people are referred to as just disciples or followers of the way or followers of Jesus. And only once is the word Christian used. And that's in Acts, I think it's like 18 or something like that. And so they just said, yeah, for the first time ever, they were called Christians in Antioch and moving on. And so it doesn't really define anything any further. Like it's just like, okay, yep. They got a little nickname in Antioch and we've adopted it and we've said, okay, well, that's the label we're going to go by. But there were so many different labels in the New Testament era and we're, we're struggling with the same thing 2000 years later. So I think it's because this door is not easily defined. Well, and I, you know, you brought up a phrase that was used in the New Testament era and I'm curious what it means to you. And that phrase is followers of the way. What does that phrase mean to you? I think it harkens back to Jesus saying that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes through the Father but through him. And so I think this is the way. This is the Jesus way. This is the, he is the path that we follow into entrance into the kingdom of heaven or into relationship with the Father or whatever. He's the way. That's how I define it. But I don't, I don't know. What's your definition? No, I think, you know, this phrase began to mean a lot more to me. I've, I've looked into some Eastern religions a fair amount because I was curious about them and because Palestine sits kind of on the, the dividing line between the East and the West. Hmm. And so I'm often curious if... Eastern thought will help me understand Jesus a little bit better and show where I assume he's more Western than he is. Hmm. I don't know if this is one of those moments, but in Eastern philosophy and religion, there is this sort of idea that you are a practitioner of a way, and it's your path to enlightenment and it is often one that you are following as an apprentice to a teacher in a way that is very reminiscent to me of the biblical idea of rabbi, in which the sayings of the teacher become the cornerstones of your lifestyle, and your goal is to emulate the teacher in everything that you do. And so the Followers of the way, in that sense, would mean people who are practicing what they recognize to be a life 
consuming apprenticeship to more than a mentor, more than a teacher, somebody you want to model your life after. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like it really because it is very holistic. It involves both what I think, what I do, how I live, how I make decisions. All of that is captured under like this idea of being apprenticed to the way or the way of Jesus or Jesus as the way. And that's different in my mind by some of our modern understandings of the word Christian. Because I think Christian has been boiled down to those who have prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus into their heart. That's your basic standard definition. And that can easily be confused for a one-and-done kind of thing or something you mentally assent to and nothing more. It really can lose a lot of its holisticness that I think you're trying to capture in what you just said. Yeah. You know, as you're saying that, I think that this really does allow for a fence that I'm comfortable with. The other way I would say we typically put the fence is, as a matter of fact, I have done this myself. I have mentored groups of students and said, okay, what are the things we have to believe to actually be Christians? And my intent in those situations was often to skim off the top the things that they think are essential that aren't. But what if that's the wrong question? What if what do I have to believe is the wrong question? What if what Jesus is looking for is practitioners of the way? How do I know I'm on the inside? I, I'm a practitioner of the way. That's a super hard thing to say. Like, I think that's the problem, right? We were looking for something a little bit more solid than that. We're looking for something a little bit more guaranteed than how do I know I'm in? Well, this is how I live my life. Mm-hmm. It's super ill-defined because that would, again, you know, I don't, I don't know who's listening. And so please forgive me for the positives and negatives of the stereotype that I am about to reveal that goes on in my head all the time. But that means a wildly liberal Christian who is trying to live their life Jesus' way is on equal footing with me and evangelical. Hmm. And I don't know that we're okay with that. I need to be righter than somebody, darn it. <laughs> right. Well, and I was immediately going to go to a very evangelical defense which was, yeah, but you can do all those liberal things, but you need to be doing it in pursuit of Jesus. You can't just be doing those things as a substitute for Jesus. But immediately, like I stopped myself from that argument because I think we do the same thing in reverse with theology. Oh, well, I assent to these, you know, orthodox theological beliefs. So therefore, I'm an evangelical Christian. And you go, well, yeah, but you have to assent to those in pursuit of the actual Jesus behind those doctrines. So I think we're both guilty of doing our respective outgrowths of the faith, our respective ways of living out the faith uh, without Jesus. Well, and to flip the coin, I think there are people in both camps, right? This is the stereotype that we have of folks in the liberal camp. Oh, they're just doing their stuff 
I know people who are doing their liberal stuff out of a great respect for and affection for and appreciation of Jesus. I mean, let's assume for a moment that Father Richard Rohr is who he appears to be from his books and conferences and workshops, which I have no reason to think he's not. We disagree on lots of stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And based on the traditional theological belief paradigm of an evangelical, if I were forced or you were forced to say, is he on the inside or the outside? I think we'd both probably say, "Eh, I really want him to be on the inside, but I think he's probably on the outside. Hmm. But I have no doubt in my mind that he is fully apprenticed to Jesus, even if he ends up in some different places than me, or that he's trying to act out of an authentic and real relationship with Jesus, even if he wouldn't use the evangelical language I use to capture that. Well, I mean, yes, this is where it gets really tricky, because you're right. I think if we were to have to say, in or out, for me, it would come down to the fact that Rohr appears to assent to the idea of universalism. In other words, in some way or another, we all will come to God in some fashion. And many of these roads are just as okay as others. And I think the Orthodox Christian belief here is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through him. And so I think that universalistic tendency is where I would say, "Mm, probably on the outside. But if we Mm -hmm. boil it down to apprenticed to the way, what he's more than apprenticed to the way. He is very far down the way, and I have learned a lot from him. Yeah, exactly, right? And that's exactly, I was going to chime in and say, Potentially further, not potentially, almost certainly further down the way than I am. Right. And as a quick caveat to uh, you and to anyone else who's listening here, I am not trying to present an answer here. As I push back on this, as we sort of poke at this question, I'm not trying to create an answer that allows me to redefine things so that, say, Richard Rohr is in or out or whatever. This is an honest conversation. Again, we've talked about this before, but I guess I'm afraid that I'm going to come across as not in the evangelical camp because of some of the things I'm suggesting. And I at least want to say I'm hesitant about suggesting them, so don't judge me too much. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, and here's the thing. like I think our traditional evangelical definition is far too simplistic. Like I said before, I think very frequently we boil down the word Christian to who has said the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus Christ into their heart. That is our definition. And that is just as inadequate, maybe even more inadequate, than this idea of being apprenticed to Jesus and following the way. I think in both cases, we need to heavily qualify it and To be quite honest, I'd put more qualifications and more yeah buts on the overly simplistic definition of, you know, having said the sinner's prayer. Well, and this makes a point. I don't know if we've talked about this before or not. So pause me if if I've said this thought before. But 
One of the grave problems, perhaps, is that when we look for language to start people on whatever this journey is called, it's easy to take that language as a known commodity rather than something that is going to begin to mean more and more and more the longer you study it. Uh, mm. I, I come back to this idea. This is entirely a thought from N.T. Wright. I once heard Wright say something like, we don't have to worry about whether people fully understand what they're being baptized into when they're baptized, because the whole point is they'll spend the rest of their lives discovering what their baptism meant. And I tell you what, like I'm rising up in revolt from my Baptist pew and saying, no, they absolutely have to understand and they have to know what they're doing. Otherwise, it's not meaningful. And I'm I'm sitting myself back down because I actually agree with you more, but there's that instinct that's that rises up in me. Yeah. And I get where it's coming from. You know, one of the great things about the Baptist tradition in particular as it's practiced today is a great passion for truth that I love. Yes. I mean, there's a reason we read all the books we read and study all the things we study and I am grateful for the Reformed approach to spirituality that says you can be a smart, intellectually informed Christian. That's possible and good. And so I by no means want to be overly critical of that, but I get exactly what you're saying, right? Like, no, 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 we got to get it. I think is something we all say from our own vantage point, you know, as a, as a Pentecostal follower of Jesus over here. I might not say you have to get it. I might say you have to have had an authentic experience, an authentic encounter. Mm. But it's the same idea. Well, right. And it's funny because it's so easy to critique the other side, right? And then you you have to mm -hmm. realize, oh, shoot, that same critique applies to me. And so my Baptist trends say, okay, well, define authentic, please. And then I can just hear you saying, okay, well, then define get it, please. No, absolutely. Well, in all honesty, that is where I started the conversation, isn't it? What does it mean to be Christian? Our normal answer to that is, here are the things you have to believe. Yeah. I think that's exactly what we're trying to do. And I think all of these end up coming up bankrupt. Because from my perspective— Several times I went back to the church I grew up in that is not in the Pentecostal tradition. And some of my more expressive Pentecostal friends who grew up with me in that local church would go back and be like, oh, man, they are just not doing things in a way that like lets the spirit move. And I'd be like, were you in the same service I was in? Because I found that profoundly moving and had a really powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I don't understand. One of us was not in the right church. <laughs> and I saw you across the room, so I'm not sure how to work this all out. Yeah. So what do we do? What is it that we are looking for? Because we're clearly looking for something. What is it we're looking for here? I'm looking for a way of describing what it means to be, quote, Christian that doesn't get misunderstood either because the word Christian has too much baggage and too many false or oversimplified 
understandings of what that means. Or because I'm dealing with somebody who has never really encountered the Christian walk before, and as I invite them into this thing, I want some verbiage, some language to call it, that will invite them into the right thing. And I don't want to lead Mm -hmm. somebody astray by oversimplifying it in one direction or another or yet another or whatever. I feel like words, as we've kind of talked about, words are inadequate here, and I would hate to give somebody the wrong impression about what I'm inviting them to participate in. Yeah, I like that. I think the only thing I would add to that is that I think I'm often honestly looking for a, I'm going to say a unifying metaphor, but that's not quite what I mean. A unifying a unifying view of this religious thing that I do that helps me organize the pieces even in my own life. You know, we've talked about in very different spheres how the reason you have to read a first book in any subject is just to get the main ideas so that you can hang your hat on those things as you get the details. Yeah. I often feel like I've got a lot of the details as a follower of Jesus, and I'm still trying to get the organizing principle that is the main idea. Hmm. I mean, I, so I, I was going to give the Sunday school answer. Well, the main idea is always Jesus. The main idea is having a relationship. The, the way we evangelicals tend to say it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I've heard those words from so many pulpits. I still don't understand what is meant by that. I mean, I, I've mm-hmm. developed in my adult years some level of a personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't know if what the pastor was saying in that sermon is the same thing that I'm experiencing or what he had in mind or whatever. So even that, as crystal clear as that sounds from a pulpit, is hard to define. All right. It's so deeply metaphorical. And deeply, to be honest, it is deeply historically rooted far more than it is biblically rooted. You know, Mm. the great Christians of the 1600s, you know, John Calvin kinds of people would not have ever said that. As Christianity got popularized in the era, kind of the post-Reformation era of John Wesley and, and those folks, and then going into... Uh, the 1800s, whatever, there is this sort of uh, mysticization of Christianity, right? Something that is emotional and experiential on a level that whole chunks of Christian history weren't really thinking about, but we are and have decided it's important. And so we're, we're taking one thing that is one element of the way Christianity has been expressed across 2,000 years and saying, this is the one that matters. It's the experience. Because even that personal relationship with Jesus, that is a deeply experiential phrase. Well, it's not just experiential. It's individualistic, which very much matches our culture. And so it's all about Mm -hmm. me and Jesus and my relationship with Jesus. And what I like about how you're bringing history into it we're being rooted into something larger than us, the church universal, the church 
universal across the whole world in its present forms and the church historic. And we are embedded into that community. And that is a tangible, real community with as much as we don't want to talk about it when we talk about an individual relationship with Jesus, with real fences. There are things that establish whether or not we're walking in accordance with the historical Christian Orthodox understanding of how this all works. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, we're almost at the point where we need to wrap up. I'm just curious, what's your takeaway from this conversation? That no matter what words I use to describe what it means to be a Christian, they're always going to be incomplete. And that mm. part of what it means to be a Christian is to be in community and to develop a more robust understanding of that Christian walk as you go. And if your starting point is saying the sinner's prayer, then that's your starting point. If your starting point is coming into a relationship with Jesus, then great, that's your starting point. Do I think some starting points are a little bit more descriptive than others? Of course. But at the end of the day, they're all going to be incomplete, and you just have to keep growing. That, I think, is my takeaway. What's yours? Mm. You know, I am really caught by the phrase, a practitioner of the Jesus way. All of its weaknesses I think it offers a corrective that I need to be mindful of whenever I am thinking about these things. And so I like the fact that it's holistic. I like the fact that it is practical. I like the fact that it is relevant to my everyday life. And it helps me make sense of certain questions I have about sort of inside or outsider language. And I like the fact that it is deeply rooted in a non-equal relationship with Jesus, mm. meaning it's not like me and Jesus are buddies. It's he is the master and I am the student. And I, I like that. So a practitioner of the Jesus way. Mm. I like that. I like it too. I think it's a mouthful and I, I don't know that it's going to catch on anytime soon, but Nope. <laughs> it, it's pretty descriptive, and I like that. Well, let me turn to the audience and say, how would you describe who you are? I, I mean, Christian is a shorthand, and we've been using it for thousands of years, but is there a better term that you have found? Why do you like it? And how does it help communicate the gospel to somebody else? We'd love to hear that. And We'd love for you to share this episode, wrestle with this concept with a friend, and let this be a starting point for that. That would be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, let me ask you now, I'm curious what else you've been thinking about this week. Hmm. Well, I actually, I will start my thought with a question, actually a couple of questions. You are a very smart Christian that has read his Bible many, many a time. So I'm wondering if you happen to know where these two verses are found. Ooh. Or I don't you don't have to name chapter and verse, just in what context is this found? Again I say to you, if two of you agree on any matter on earth that you might ask, it will be done for you by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. 
It's obviously the Gospels because it's Jesus that's talking. Okay. I think. I'm afraid that this is going to be one of those Ben Franklin. It's actually in like some secular book or something, but it pretty sure that's Jesus. <laughs> it um, is. It is. You got that far. And I want to say that it is Luke's Sermon on the Plain, but I'm not 100% sure. I could be completely wrong. I would have said Matthew or Luke, and I would have guessed Luke. Okay. And for our listeners, what would the context, what would the Sermon on the Plain kind of be about? So this is his Discipleship 101, is what I would call it. It's the long form of Jesus' call to repentance and what to do afterwards. Boy, it's tough to try to capture the main sermon of Jesus in a, in a hook like that. Uh, so I, I right. don't want to hold on to that too tightly. But yeah. you know, going back to our last conversation, I think it is an introduction to the practice of following the Jesus way. This is the Jesus way. So here's the fascinating thing. These verses exist in my mind outside of a context. And any verses that exist outside of a context are problematic. Mm-hmm. And so you, being a seminary graduate, a pastor of 20 years, and a guy that I deeply respect about his knowledge of the word and his relationship with Jesus, also did not specify the context for these verses. And I suspect yeah, almost yeah. everybody would not be able to do that because these are contextless verses. We have used them in a thousand different ways. But they actually come from Matthew. And okay. they come at uh, toward the end of Matthew 18, which church polity, oh. we come to this all the time for like, okay, if somebody's sinning, you go and confront them. And if they don't listen, you bring two or three people and you confront them again. And if they don't listen, then you bring them to the whole church. And then if he still doesn't listen to the church, you treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector. And then Jesus goes on, whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. And where two or three are gathered in my name, the two or three that just you brought to talk to this guy, if two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. In other words, I'm going to walk you through this whole process because whatever you choose to do is also going to have results in heaven and vice versa. I will guide that entire process. But it gets even bigger than that because chapter 18, we often think of Matthew 18. Oh, that's the chapter where he talks about church discipline. Well, yes, but he talks about other things. And all of this begins at the very beginning of chapter 18 with Jesus saying, hey, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said, well, bring me a kid. This guy, everybody's got to come into heaven like this guy. And then, by the way, it's like, you know, I'm like the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And there's more rejoicing over that one than anything else. And so what I think is going on here is Jesus saying, and then if you've got a problem in your little ecclesia, in your church, which by the way, this is the only time in the gospels that word is used. If you've got a problem in your church, and you've elevated it and you can't solve it, eventually treat them like the one. You be the 99 and I'll go after the one. I've got this. I'm a part of this process from beginning to last. And I think in all respects, we lose the context of what's happening because we have these little pet verses or pet passages 
that we pull out of this chapter and completely alienate it from its context. Wow, that is so good. I am really excited to go back and reread Matthew 18, trying to put these puzzle pieces together. Yeah, it was super fun. This was all as a result of obviously translating this this morning. And, you know, John and I were just kind of blown away, like, oh, wait a minute, we quote these verses all the time, just completely disregarding the context in which they're found. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Wow. This is why it's so good to be able to go slow, right? Oh, my word. Um, whatever it takes for you to go slowly through the Bible, do that. Yes. Yes, agreed. Mm. But you're up. What have you been thinking about? You know, I've been thinking about some very standard words that we use as Christians. And these words are ministry and evangelism. And let me set the tone for why I'm thinking about these. I am working with a really neat organization called Kinship that is actively trying to make a difference in our very digital world, trying to combat the incredible loneliness and isolation that is rampant among Americans today. Mm. And so what they have set up is an online platform that for those of us who have been to church consistently, it functions like a small group. There's a 15-minute video and then a 45-minute discussion afterwards. And what I am doing with them is I'm one of the facilitators that they have that lead the group afterwards. And the goal is simply to cultivate transparent conversations and vulnerability. And this has me thinking about ministry and evangelism because the context here is interesting. There is nothing overtly Christian about anything that kinship does. The talks have nothing, do not mention Jesus. You are not expected to believe in Jesus, and it is perfectly fine. Wherever you're at spiritually, that's fine. The way we lead the discussions, there is nothing systemic or structural that is trying to guide people from wherever they're at to Jesus. It is just creating theoretically a spiritually neutral environment in which vulnerability and transparency can happen. What this has me thinking about are several things. One is that a younger version of me, and I've heard this from several of the facilitators who have a similar written background to mine, the, a younger version of myself would have thought, if you're not proactively involving Jesus in this process, what's the point? If the sole goal of this project isn't evangelism in the most formal sense, what are we doing? What I now find myself thinking is, I love this environment that is spiritually neutral in the sense that anybody can share from any point of view. And I think it creates a wonderful marketplace context in which individual Christians, if there is something vibrant in their own spiritual life, they are free to share it. And that is a great opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. Absolutely. And this sort of difference between creating a marketplace, spiritually neutral environment in which anybody can congregate 
versus a church context where only Christians are going to show up in a virtual space is so interesting to me. Because when I was pastoring, a good half to three quarters of my time got pulled away doing things like video and sound and organizing services and all sorts of stuff. In this context, the vast majority of my time, by which I mean like 80% of it, is just connecting with people. In a lot of ways, and my, my wife pointed this out the other day, it feels more authentic to my definition of ministry to do this thing that doesn't talk about Jesus than a lot of the stuff I did at church as a pastor. Right. Well, okay, so that's super interesting because it actually intersects with some things that I've been thinking about recently. But there's one aspect I want to say first, which is I think this model, if it's a model for evangelism, clearly that's not the way it was designed. So, But the idea that a Christian could share and that could be a uh, just as valid as anything else that is shared, and it could be an opportunity for somebody to genuinely experience the love of Christ— I think is wonderful, but I think what it does is it it forces us to ask the question, do I believe in the Holy Spirit or not? Like, do I have yeah. to contrive this moment and explicitly share my faith, or can I share my testimony in this neutral environment and allow the Holy Spirit to take it from there? That's exactly right. So that's one aspect, but then Absolutely. the other— the other aspect, the way that this is intersecting with things that I'm thinking about, I'm preparing for my role as a counselor and thinking about how that intersects or doesn't with quote-unquote ministry. Because again, I'm not sitting in a counseling mm. room sharing you know, the Roman road with this person and saying, this is your path to healing, right? This, that's not what this is all about. But what I've likened it to recently is where Jesus scatters this seed, right? And the seed lands on the rocky soil, or it lands on the hard, compact soil, or it lands on the soil choked with briars. And I think we just acknowledge that and we just say, okay, well, that's the path, or that's the ground that it landed on and it didn't work out. What about tilling that soil? What about removing the briars? What about adding some nutrients to the mix? What about helping that person be more healthy? more engaged, more whole, and more prepared to receive the gospel when it's inevitably shared with them. Is that not ministry also? Yes. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. All right. This has been so good. But at some point, we do have to get to the Witch Josh question. Ooh. Are you ready? All right. Lay it on me. All right. Today's Witch Josh question is... Which Josh once rode his bike 35 miles to camp? Oh, yes, this was me. This was great. We, wow. uh, when I was a kid, our camp was up on uh, Mount Hood and we lived in Portland. And so one of the guys in our church, he was an avid cyclist. And so he was going to be a camp counselor at the camp. And his son was going to go to camp. His son was the same age as I was. And so we were probably around 12 years old or something like that. And the dad was like, hey, I know the rest of the youth group is going to be heading up in a van. You guys want to ride your bike with me? We can do it. 
And it sounded like such a cool, awesome thing. Like, well, we just couldn't pass it up. So yeah, we rode 35 miles, which is like, it's not an easy 35 miles because you're going from Portland to, uh, to Mount Hood. Hood. Yeah. So you're literally riding your bike up a mountain. No, although there was one really good section. That was awesome. But um, yeah, so we rode and we rode hard. It was, uh, it was not easy and it was hot. We got there and we were like sunburned and we were hot and sweaty. And the camp actually let us dive into the pool without all the other campers just to cool off and get ready. So that was awesome. That's it was awesome. it was like one of those like, heck yeah, I did that. It was it was so great. That's the best. I love that. Yeah. Well, so there you awesome. go. Well, hey, are we we on for next week? Yeah, looking forward to it. All right. Well, I'll talk to them. All right. Bye bye. Bye.